Some of you only need to look across the dinner table to find your closest connection to agriculture. Others of us need to look a little further back to find our farming family. My name is Portia Stewart. All four of my great-grandparents were farmers. But by my grandfather's generation, only my grandfather was still in agriculture. Now, like many Americans, I have no more farmers in my family. This made me wonder, have consumers lost their connection to the land? And have farmers lost their connections with consumers? Let's see if we can make some new connections. Welcome to Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock podcast that connects the hearts and minds of producers and consumers to preserve our sustainable resources and provide high-quality food. the show with Have You Heard, the latest in livestock agriculture news. I'm joined by Nate Burke, the Director of Development and Programming for Trust in Food. Hi, Nate. Hey, Portia. Thanks for having me today. It's great to have you. Now, before we get started, I really want to explore what is, for the people who do not know, what is Trust in Food? So, First of all, thank you for the question, Portia. Trust in Food is a division of Farm Journal, and we're really building on the legacy that Farm Journal has cultivated with farm families over the past nearly a century and a half. Trust in Food is really about sort of meeting farmers and ranchers and producers and growers at the intersection of um, where, you know, they're, they're farm products, whether that's livestock, whether it's dairy, whether it's meat, whether that's crops, and the intersection that that has with um, with several different areas, one of whom is, is the consumer. And certainly there are lots of amazing industry initiatives that are focused on sort of building linkages between farmers and, and, the, and the public. And we feel that at Farm Journal, we have a, a responsibility not to duplicate those efforts, but really to champion those efforts and to accelerate them. And part of that initiative is to champion all of the amazing ways in which farmers, growers, and ranchers are stewarding natural resources, are making, are being very cognizant of their environmental footprint, are focusing on soil health, focusing on water quality, focusing on animal well-being. But not only championing all of the good things that are happening, but then acknowledging, as, as farmers already tell us through our research, they don't necessarily, by and large, see all of the goals that food companies are setting, food retailers are setting around environmental stewardship. And so being able to not only champion all the great things that are happening, but actually be able to provide farmers and ranchers with a roadmap for how they can engage in these areas of soil health, water quality, and giving them practical tools, pointing them to financial incentives, helping them understand how to, you know, not only 
celebrate the great things they're already doing, but actually tell those stories and then take the next step, whatever that step might be for each individual farmer. And so we're excited to be able to be part of that journey and, and again, help build those linkages between farmers and the value chain and the public, and then also give farmers the keys they need to be as successful, not only for the benefit of soil, water, air, livestock, but also, frankly, for the benefit of the economic viability of their farm operations. You know, one of the things that impresses me about this work is it's it's a bold statement for Farm Journal to come out and, and dedicate the resources to something like trust in food. Why now? That's really, really critical, Portia. The reason that we're doing this now is because I, I suspect that no farmer is naive to the fact that increasingly the public is demanding more information about where their food comes from. They're wanting more transparency. And for so many people who are, especially farmers, who are focused every day on, you know, challenging weather conditions, challenging economic environment, challenging trade situations, there's not a lot of time or energy to focus for an hour or two a day on all of these consumer trends, unless maybe you're directly contracting with a food company or someone along the value chain who ultimately goes down to the consumer. And so for the average farmer, for the average American farmer, this is really a critical time in history. Um, all Your audience is very familiar with the fact that farmers are, are growing older. Many of them are preparing to transition their operations to another family member, to a, a trusted um, uh, member of their business or, or something else, or maybe they aren't sure what to do. And so when we think about the legacy or the generational changes that are happening in farm country, and at the same time we pair that with the demand for greater transparency, the fact that more food companies and food retailers and conservation organizations want to get closer to farmers and co-create solutions to some of these challenges on our natural resources, whether that's water scarcity, whether that's um, you know water quality or any other topic that you might think of, we think there's a, a real need for a trusted organization like Farm Journal you know, we're, we provide an independent platform to reach farmers and to make sure farmers have a seat at the table. And so we think that there's a really great opportunity now. And, and frankly, we believe that if we don't act now, then farmers' license to operate and their ability to use technology, their ability to work in harmony with the conservation community, with food companies and retailers, is going to be severely limited if we don't provide the solutions and the access and the collaboration that we can today. And so that's why we feel like there's a really tremendous opportunity to work with farmers and to provide that kind of help starting now. You know, one of the premise, uh, premises behind uh, our podcast is actually how many Americans have maybe lost a little bit of their connection with agriculture because it used to be that a lot of us grew up on farms and, and more and more we're seeing that um, people moving away from the farms fewer young people on farms, fewer people with farming in their, in their background. So what is, uh, how, how does this relate to your guys' goals to really connect ag's mission for sustainability with the consumer? And what do you do? How are you doing that? That's a really important question, Portia. I would say that the first way that we are beginning that transition uh, to not only talking to the farm base and providing help and resources to farmers and ranchers, uh, but also to sort of bridging that relationship to the public is with a new program that we're going to be unveiling in full 
that builds on many, many decades of amazing work in the conservation agriculture space. Um, you know, you think about uh, USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service certainly being a leader there, started after the Dust Bowl back in the 1930s. You think about the contributions of groups like American Farmland Trust, the Nature Conservancy, and others that have really sort of looked at and been champions of helping farmers on their own individual land as a way to sort of build that trust with the public and as a way to make sure that our agricultural resources and heritage are protected, not only to help individual farm operations, but also to help um, you know, maintain the food security that we enjoy in the United States and maintain the beautiful uh, parks and natural resources and, and lands that we all cherish. And so um, this program that we're going to be uh, talking about more, and, and I can't share all the details right now, it's coming together quickly, uh, but by the end of this month, uh, those who are your listeners will have m many more details, and we'll be sharing those over the course of the summer and fall and, and into the next several years. But we're partnering with uh, a major, uh, working on, on partnering with a major government organization agency, working on partnering with conservation organizations, with uh, farmers in the value chain, uh, to, to again, sort of build on the momentum that has been developing over the past several decades. And one of the components of America's conservation ag movement is going to be an installation on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And annually, 24 million people visit the mall. And so that's a really impressive number, and it's an impressive number of diverse people from all over our country, probably from, um, from young people to older people, from domestic um, residents of the U.S. to those who are visiting from overseas, to expose them to modern agriculture. And so the installation is called Voice of the Farmer. Uh, we're not only partnering um, with um, a major government agency and with um, conservation organizations in the value chain, but also with farmer associations and with our partners at the Farm Journal Foundation, which is an independent 501c3 that has tremendous expertise developing, among other things, educational curriculum to help um, the public, to help policymakers, to help young people understand the role agriculture plays in our, in our landscape. And so that um, installation on the mall will feature actual crops um, growing on the mall. It'll feature um, video interviews with farmers representing a diverse um, uh, operations, including livestock, um, talking about their operations, about the uh, sustainability and conservation practices they use, about the importance of uh, economics, about uh, how weather impacts farm operations. And so it's going to be a really robust educational experience and a way to engage the public in a way that um, we've never done previously. And so that really ties in very nicely with sort of the mission-driven, purpose-driven cause of trust in food, but really Farm Journal as an organization, the Farm Journal Foundation as an organization, and these other partners that are coming to the table. Um, we'll also be introducing later this year for the farm base um, a special edition of, of Farm Journal magazine focused on conservation ag and across all sectors of agriculture, and then also doing a series of video segments on Ag Day TV, really focusing on champions of, of conservation, animal well-being, and other factors that, that roll under that umbrella. Uh, and that will include livestock, it will include dairy, it will include uh, row crop and produce and so on. So bundle all of that together, and we think that, you know, I said earlier, and I want to reiterate, we're not the only player in this space. We're doing, um, there are so many other people doing such amazing work, and, and many of whom have been doing this for decades. 
But again, the, the unique role that we play is to be able to um, have that independent platform to the farm base and to then begin rolling, adding in elements that engage consumers in a way that is supportive and additive of other existing industry efforts and really provide some of that connective tissue, if you will, that brings these, these uh, platforms and programs together and elevates them and accelerates the speed at which they can reach the public and reach farmers with information that's relevant to both of those audiences. Nate, I'm just so impressed by uh, what you guys are doing and how fast you're moving. I know, you know, from a perspective of farm journal and service journalism, changing our readers' lives is really what we're all about, is helping our readers improve their lives and improve their livelihood. And I love this big thinking and, and how we're seeing real change. So I guess I'm going to ask you to think even bigger and ask, um, what do you want to see in five years? Uh, five years from now, what does Trust in Food look like and what are you doing? Thank you so much for the question, Portia. And uh, you know, that's a really, I'll, I'll give it a, a, a brief thought. And, and I think obviously with anything new and developing, plans change. But I think as we think about trust in food, you know, we envision America's conservation ag movement, this sort of public-private partnership as a five-year program. And that's part of what we're doing at Trust in Food. We're providing support, Farm Journal, the Farm Journal Foundation, and others. I think at the end of that five-year period, and if we think about America's conservation ag movement, again, the purpose of that program is to really build on, build on this great momentum that our industry has and this great passion that the public has to better understand agriculture. So at the end of that five years, what I would really like to see is that farmers in the main, if you ask any farmer in the United States, they would be able to share with great pride the work that they're doing in conservation ag, whether they grow livestock, whether they raise row crops, whatever it might be, to be able to share what they're doing and where they want to see themselves going, giving them that that ability to speak conversantly about it. Uh, many farmers, understandably, they're wonderful people, they're passionate about the land and their livestock, and they're often very humble people. And those are characteristics we all adore and, and want to champion. Right. At the same time, we want farmers to be able to not be ashamed to talk about those things and to understand that by speaking out on those topics, um, they can be, you know, they're serving the public, they're serving their communities, and they're also looking ahead to how conservation becomes an integral part of their business because it, it economically makes sense and it makes sense for the land and for their neighborhood. Um, I think from a, a, a national standpoint, what I would really like to see too is that we're able to accelerate and champion and, and collate all of the great information, the local watershed level projects, the financial incentives, um, the technical assistance, all of the work that's happening in so many places all over our country and to provide a platform that allows all of those efforts to grow. Because if we don't grow and accelerate and address the public's need to know, the ability for farmers to operate successfully with technology and environmental stewardship, if we don't act together now, then we risk becoming fragmented and becoming an echo chamber. And that's the last thing that we want to happen. And so being able to reduce hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico, if that doesn't happen, you know, what does that say about the public's trust in agriculture? Right. And the same can be said for any environmental issue around the country. And it, you know, I want to be clear, agriculture is one of, of many, you know, we think about urban neighbors contributing to 
um, you know, strains on environmental resources and others, but this program is really about championing agriculture's role, taking ownership of the opportunities that we have to tell that story and to make positive change, right. and then actually being able to document that change from an attitude and awareness standpoint of conservation ag and the farm base and the public, and then also being able to actually go into the environment, go into our local neighborhood, into our local watershed, and measure that, in fact, farmers, what farmers are saying completely holds water and that we are making progress and we can be proud of that story. I love that. And there's so many stories. Just as we have conversations, we learn more and more about, uh, about the people out there really making real change. Nate, thank you so much for stopping by to talk to us today. Will you come back and share more news as you have a, your big announcement? Absolutely, Portia. We'd be more than happy to. And again, thanks so much to your audience for the work they do every day to make a difference on the landscape. would be delighted to come back and talk more about this new program in a few weeks. Thank you so much, Nate. You bet, Portia. Take care. Next, let's meet a millennial. Here, millennial consumers share their feelings about meat and dairy what they eat, where they shop, and how they make purchasing decisions. Today I'm joined by Ashley. Hi, Hi. Ashley. Hi, Portia. How's it going? Pretty good. <laughs> so my first question for you is, are you a meat eater? I am. I'm very much so. So what is your favorite type of beef? So generally, we're pretty simple. Ground beef we use in all kinds of different stuff, whether it's tacos or soup or different things like that. Right. Um, what I discovered recently, which is probably very much a stereotypically millennial thing, was the rotisserie chicken when it's already been pulled off the chicken and it's just ready to use. It's more expensive, but with my schedule, both my husband and I work full-time. I've been on three business trips in the month of April. <laughs> um, it's Those extra dollars are totally worth it to me to just be able to put that in a soup or put that in for enchiladas or whatever. That's a great idea. I love that. I'm going to use that to, you know, we shop at Costco a lot, and they have those rotisserie chickens there, and then they have those pot pies, and I've always wondered, are, is the meat in that pot pie, is it the leftover rotisserie chickens that didn't sell? I would, I would not think be absolutely. I would think absolutely because that's. Um, I was at a an HEB over the weekend when right. I was in San Antonio, and one of the things they mentioned is in their produce department, with everything that looks like you know it's got a day or two of shelf life left, they'll take it, they'll cut it up, and they'll use it in the juices that they make in house, and then sell the juices. So nothing's going to waste. That's smart. So I'm sure they do the same kind of thing with with meat. Right. So how do you make decisions about food? Do you have any influences? Um, I can't say that I particularly follow, I don't think, any any particular blogs or that sort of thing. I do, if I'm looking for recipes, I'll look at Pinterest mm -hmm. um, as kind of a go-to for me. My mom has sent me multiple cookbooks, which right. must be trying a to hint. tell me something, you know, <laughs> hint, hint, grow up and learn to cook more. Um, but those are Pinterest when I'm looking for things. Um, sometimes I will at my local grocery store pick up. Uh, they have a monthly magazine that'll have, you know, like overall health information and different recipe ideas and kind of feature stories and that sort of stuff. So sometimes I'll look in there. Um, if it has a whole lot of ingredients, that can be a little daunting if they're not super familiar or I just don't know where to find them in the store. Right. Um, but th those are a couple places that I look. <laughs> right. That's a good tip. So um, one of the things that we have heard uh, just anecdotally is that millennials spend more on food than on even clothing, how important is food to you and, and where would you rate your spending? Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. 
Oh, that would be, I mean, those are probably two of the, two of the bigger categories. Maybe we do spend more on food, just between me and my husband. Um, he's 6'4", so he, he can put down some food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we definitely like, you know, we like, you know, meat and produce, and we definitely tend to be perimeter shoppers, you know, when right. it comes to going to the store. Um, so I, I would say it's pretty important. It's definitely like if we have a special occasion, usually it's wrapped around eating, whether that's with family or with each other. Right. Um, so that's kind of the role that it has for us. <laughs> right. And is there anything like uh, that you consider to be a special treat that's maybe more expensive that, that is kind of one of those, oh, I feel like treating myself? Mm-hmm. I think definitely some of the some of the fresh cut fruits and vegetable mixes are right. one that, you know, since it's more expensive, normally I wouldn't necessarily get it, but you know, if I if it's been a long week and I just want to make sure that I have something healthy and I don't want time to be a barrier to that, right? <laughs> that's when I might pick up something like that or the the grilling vegetables or that are already prepared or things like that. <laughs> yeah, those are nice. Those meal kits. Oh my lifesaver. Yeah, we tried out a couple of those actually um, just recently. We were two of three on on the ones that we liked, which was pretty good, I thought. So <laughs> that's really good. Have you ever tried one of those um, subscription uh, plans? I have not. So we actually, um, well, in, in the course of our work, of course, um, we had read about meal kits coming to our, our local grocery store. Right. They were just starting to carry them, you know, there at the retail location. So I thought, well, I'm not sure, you know, I wonder where their merchandise is. I'll have to look around and kind of see. And I saw they had a few different options. So I just, I grabbed three of them. And within a couple of days we had made them and one we didn't care for, but the other two were like, this would be a really good, you know, on a busy travel week or, uh-huh. you know, a lot of stuff going on. Um, something that would be a viable option, not for every meal, definitely, but you know, every now and then when things are especially busy. <laughs> right, absolutely. So one last question. What is your favorite guilty pleasure treat? Oh my goodness. I love chocolate in general. So that that encompasses many things, but <laughs> So it could be a chocolate shake, it could be a piece of chocolate, just as yeah. long as it has chocolate in it. Yep, for Agreed. sure. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. Thanks so much, Portia. For today's main dish, we're serving up part two of our discussion with Jim Rovers and Sophie Cranley of AFIMAC Global Risk Management and Elite Security, a company that works with businesses in all parts of the food supply chain, from farms and processing plants to restaurants and grocery stores, to help mitigate their risks. Let's join them now. So what is your advice for producers um, to, to manage that human resources side and how can they get ahead of this and and manage both those employees, their behavior in the moment, and also their behavior if, say, an activist would show up at their door? Right. So um, pre-employment screening, and, and right. I'm going to preface this, most groups go, I'm going to run a criminal record check while it's clean. There's a lot of bad people walking around that are, not, that are, that are not criminals. My number one thing that I always say to everybody uh, whether you do it yourself or you engage a company like yours, a good social media and online background check. We've seen where uh, groups have hired people and you're looking going, okay, the person's into yoga, they're into meditation, they're a vegetarian, they've got a host of things going on. So the first time they see something happen at a farm level, this is probably not, it's it's just not a good fit. Good fit. Right. Um, you, you know, you have to... You know, you have to look at that. Um, like 
I said earlier, I grew up on a farm, and we struggled from time to time to find farmhands. And true story, my dad brings a guy on board, really good guy, hard worker. He knows how to run a combine, drive a tractor, heavy equipment, good around the animals, really hard worker. And one day, the police drive up the driveway. Does so-and-so work here? Yes. Bang. And they throw him in handcuffs. And we had no idea. Wow. We had hired a really bad, you know, really bad person. So I think sometimes farmers feel that, hey, I don't have a list of people kicking my door in to come to work here. And away you go. Another good strategy is that, you know, depending on what they're hiring for, you ease that person into sensitive positions or jobs or tasks, right? You're not going to obviously have a new hire in areas that, you know, can be photographed in a bad way, you know. So having that in place is key. And it's funny Sophie says that. Again, I was a city boy before I moved to a farm. So, you know, when you have a pet die and you live in the city, I mean, you got to go to the vet and you got to get it cremated and there's this whole process. Right. And, you know, now you're taking whether they're city people or people that just haven't worked on a farm. Again, the farm I grew up on was 350 South Farrow to finish. There was a dead animal every day. Right. You know what? You've got to, you know, you've got to get it out of the pen. You've got to either incinerate it or call the dead stock company. I mean, you've got to do all the right things at the end of the day. But I remember it was really unsettling for me, you know, sort of, oh, my God, what's happening here? And so Sophie raises a very valid point that some people are sensitive to things. And it's just getting them accustomed to it, explaining, you know, what's taking place. You know, in a way you go that way. The other thing that absolutely blows my mind, if you go to any manufacturing facility anywhere in North America, most of them have a policy related to the use of cell phones, photographic equipment, and that relates to employees, vendors, customers, contractors. And when you show up, you have a locker, and your cell phone goes in that locker. Right. You're not allowed to have a phone out. And the simple message at any one of those facilities, if you see something, say something, right? Right. And let's face it, if you're if you're a U.S. defense contractor building military equipment, I can guarantee you you're not allowed to photograph or videotape anything. And they actually have uh, people, hey, somebody brought a camera and they took a picture of this. And you look at a farm, we allow them to bring their camp, you know, how is it? Some of the videos I've seen, like they're ten and fifteen minutes long, and and you know they don't appear to be real covert in uh, in nature. Um, and nobody went, hey, you know, why what, are you filming? Right. You know, what, what, you know, what, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? So put some policies in place from an HR perspective, right? Confidentiality agreements. You want to create a process where if they see something that's incorrect. And that's the other side of it. It's reportable. And and guess what? There are no repercussions for reporting things that are inappropriate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 uh, and creating sort of that level of, uh, level, uh, you know, level of, level of awareness um, at the end of the day. So I hope, hope that makes sense. I think you make such an important point there that 
Uh, context is so important when we visit someplace new. Uh, I would think going into an operating room, uh, if you didn't understand a medical procedure, uh, watching a doctor cut open a patient would be, you'd be terrified. So, so the same thing on, on a farm that processes that would be natural and safe and appropriate could be misinterpreted. You know, if you look at it this way, and I'm going to turn back to my farming roots in the pig business, and I had a friend come over, you know, I want to have a play day. He comes over and he goes, again, that's really cruel that that mother pig is in a farrowing crate, right? And my father explained, you know, there's 10 pigs there, and if she's not in that farrowing crate, she's likely going to, like, lay on, she's going to kill the majority of them right. by laying on them. And then, you know, the other thing that I find, I, I won't say humorous, but here's how the activists have portrayed it. That hog is in that farrowing crate from the moment they're born until the moment they die. And reality is a mother pig has wiener pigs or a calf or whatever. You know, in the pig world, that wiener's like, it, it's, 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 uh, it's weaned off its mother at the four-week mark. Right. Right. The mother is then, and I, I know at our farm we wanted those pigs to be healthy. We had a big run outside that was full of mud and dirt and rocks and everything. And they went out there, you know, for a period of one or two months, got their energy back, got feeling good, looking good before the breeding cycle continued again. Because what you learn is I can mass produce and I can keep breeding them, but I'm just going to lose my mud. They're just going to perish, right? You can't, you can't, uh, you, you can't have a healthy product. Yeah, you right. can't do that, right? So one thing I wanted to ask you that we always ask on the podcast, we like to ask what is one thing that we could do as in agriculture today to to really promote um, promote ourselves for the future, to, to position ourselves to be um, uh, better producers? So again, I will go back to the one thing you've got to do in my mind is educate, 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 right. grassroots campaigns. You know, um, you know, kids in the schools, um, because you know, again, a lot of people that live in cities, they never get out to a farm anymore. They never, you know, all they get fed is what they, what they, what they see on the the internet. So, um, we found with other uh, groups and movements that have protested over the years, um, I use the term a debunking process. Right. You know, you, you put this out here and it's a very graphic picture that does not depict what we do and, and calling it out and educating and, and um, again we met uh, one of the ladies there and she was uh, an animal welfare expert and went through you know what we do health checks on the animals we check on how farmers are treating animals went through it and I was even mesmerized because she explained the whole thing to me and I went why is nobody talking about talking it? about it? Because it's like it's the Wild West. They just get to do yeah. whatever they want. There's no inspections. There's no checks. And, right. You know, I, I keep bringing up the, uh, uh, you know, my my farming roots. My, uh, my parents sold their wiener pigs through a co-op, right? Right. Uh, um, and they bought all the wiener pigs, and it was a convenient way to sell them. They were in our barns every week. Are they clean? Are they this? Where's your feed stored? How, like, right. everything. And uh, you know what? I think that went a long way to 
guess what? That product that's on the shelf, guess what? It goes through a lot of rigorous inspection, checking, improvements, and away you go that way. The other thing that I would say, anytime there is an incident that's wrong, say what it is. Right. We've covered an incident. It's wrong. Here's the steps that we've taken to correct that. Here's what we're doing as an industry. I think a lot of times, how do we hide that? How do we bury that? You know, the example I'll give you, we had a calfing operation, dairy that was targeted. One of the messages we gave to the farmer was make sure that, you know, all the calfing huts are checked. We want to make sure that there's, you know, no dead animals or animals that are in a distressed state. You know, so the activists show up that day, and guess what? Great news. There are no dead animals, no animals in distress. Right. But he's got a bin, and there's legs and heads and arms and stuff. It's like, man, oh, man. We almost got it. Did you just, like, what are you doing? And that should be one that's an unacceptable practice. Here's how animals should be properly dealt with when they're distressed. Here's how they need to be disposed of. Here's a gap. Here's what we're doing. Here's what's happening to the individuals involved. Because the consumer, at the end of the day, I believe, goes, you know what? It's an industry. It's screwed up. But they're dealing with it. They're addressing it. They're fixing it. And not, as we know, the minute you try to hide something, once it gets oxygen, it's like a fire. You can't put it out. Right. I have one more question for you. One of the things that we have struggled a lot with, comes up pretty frequently, is I think of them as the PETA billboards, but really it can be bigger than that. It can be other organizations. PETA is just the one that we tend to think of often in these sort of more extreme examples. But they put out a message, say, that we know it's so extreme, it's so untrue. And we probably recognize they're doing this not because they believe they're going to convince a lot of people, and maybe they will, but the extreme nature of what they're portraying, either through very vivid and disturbing imagery or through messaging, what is the best response to that? Is it to ignore it? I know sometimes those messages tend to get a lot of media coverage because they are extreme, and they fuel a lot of emotion. But how should we respond to those things? I think to date what I've seen is the old head in the sand. You know, don't say anything. It'll go away. It'll go away. It'll go away. And they aren't going away. Right. They aren't going away. What we found with other protest movements in oil and gas, lumber, forestry, pulp and paper, you know what? A lot of them will hire external experts in crisis communication. And that's no disrespect to people in the communication realm for these groups. However, they're very used to talking about positive things. Right. And they have a hard time calling out when something is just not true. And that external communication group can say, that's not right. Here it is. Here's the stats. Here's what's happening. And I always look at, you know, this horrible thing will come out. 
and you'll go, wow, there's another 100 pile-on stories, and there's only one little message from an association or a firm. Your message is buried down on page four of what's going on. Right. And I think that crisis communication groups are really good at and where, you know, internal communications groups are, you know, internal communications tend to be very proud of, you know, especially in the agriculture world, they're very proud. You know, they have members, they have family members, they're very close to their members. Um, so there, it, it's almost better to separate yourself from that um, when right. dealing with these. We find that crisis communicators are really well um, versed in being able to spin something and creatively respond to a an attack. Right, because if you don't create, if you don't respond appropriately, you're going to either fuel it, or it's going to backfire on you. Right. Right. Um, so if you do that creative spin properly, it it quickly goes away because there's nothing to there's nothing to even go against it again. Right. Right. The other thing that I will say is, you know, I was dealing with a uh, a mining group, and this was to do with they're trying to set a mine up, and there was certainly concerns raised about pollution and the environment and things of that nature and they were getting targeted heavily by activists and they said listen we're just going to go with our our uh, corporate communications person and i know the guy really really uh, well um and he's like he calls me on a saturday jim i went to tim wardens they stopped me there i went to watch my son's hockey game they're in the arena they had uh, sat all around me, heckled me, yeah. made it to a, a complete mess. So I think some of that heavy lifting, you, you, you need somebody that's not attached to it. And right. when they need to call it out, um, they, know, they know how to call it out. The other thing that um, we've seen a lot of groups do successfully, we haven't seen it so much in the farming and meat producing space, is you will have a, uh, you know, one group, uh, that we dealt with, they had a uh, a dark website built, so it was part of their website, and they just continued to populate that with the real facts. Yeah. You know what I mean? The real facts. And essentially, they had an incident. They took a, they, you know, they got a bit of a black eye, and that website was already up, already, not three weeks from now, up, populated, turned on, and then they turn their social media feeds loose with, here are the real facts, here are the real facts. And it goes back to hearts and minds. Originally right. what we saw is, don't believe the site, it's propaganda, it's propaganda. And as they debunked a lot of those things, more and more people started to go to that trusted, you know, it's a trusted site. Like it or not, the, in, the, the real stuff's on here. And if, if there's a mess up or a screw up, it's on there as well too. Here's what we're doing, and we're you know in a way go that way, and you become the trusted voice in that uh, in that uh, in that space, and you'll find right. people going to that. So running those campaigns becomes really really uh, important <coughs> in a way uh, in a way go. Jim and Sophie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today on Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock Podcast. For more information about Trust in Food, visit trustinfood.com. To learn more about the dairy business, visit dairyherd.com. We'll see you next time on Overheard.